Hello and welcome to Inside Maine. I'm Angus King and we're talking about issues that are relevant to Maine and Maine people, but also people across the country. And today, one of the most important is rural health care, providing health care in areas that aren't close to great big hospitals, aren't close to large cities, but where health care is absolutely essential and and we have some special challenges. First, we're going to be talking to Senator Tina Smith of Minnesota, which uh, I've always thought of Minnesota as a lot like Maine. It's Maine without the ocean. Uh, It's a very similar kind of climate, similar people. And then later, we'll be talking to Chris Duty, who's the CEO of the Cary Medical Center up in Caribou. But Tina Smith, Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Angus. I'm so happy to be with you today. And I have to say that I have a family connection to Maine because my great-grandfather was a Maine Northwoodsman. Oh, no kidding. And being in Maine and being connected to Maine has been part of my life from the very beginning. Our kids went to college there. My husband went to college in Maine. And so I appreciate the similarities between Maine and Minnesota. We don't have an ocean, but we have the great inland sea of Lake Superior. Of course. And you're certainly welcome back in Maine anytime. Well, you You and I have worked together with a number of our colleagues, bipartisan, totally bipartisan, on rural health care. Talk to me about what you see in Minnesota, and then we can sort of compare notes. Sure. Well, Minnesota is a state of about five and a half million people, and we have large urban centers, just like you have in Maine, but big chunks of the state look like small towns and rural communities. And that's where we see real challenges with rural health care. I bet like you have in Maine that runs the gamut, um, small rural hospitals that are struggling to provide access to basic health care, a shortage of providers, uh, needs for technology innovations like telehealth. An aging population. Exactly. An older population. And in some cases, uh, a, a sicker population, a population that is dealing more with chronic diseases like diabetes and um, high blood pressure and um, those kinds of things. Well, it's that's exactly the picture we have. And, and the other piece is that we have 16 counties. In eight of our 16 counties, the hospital is the largest employer. Yes. So it's a very significant economic uh, part of our community. So we can't just say, well, we have too many hospitals, we'll let them go, because they're the heart of many of our smaller towns. That's exactly the way it is in Minnesota. And I wonder if you have this, uh, the, what we experience in Minnesota, I wonder if it's the same in Maine, is a shortage of the kinds of health care that younger families rely on, for example, maternity care. Exactly. We've lost some maternity care wards in some of our rural hospitals. People now have to go 50 miles. Yes, that's. we have the same, we have exactly the same thing. Way up in the north eastern part of Minnesota is a beautiful community called Grand Marais, a wonderful community. It's very active. Is that and up vi- near Duluth? Is that- it's, it's north of Duluth along the north shore. I didn't know there was shore. anything north of Duluth. <laughs> Duluth is only about halfway. <laughs> okay. And uh, sort of like I would say in Maine, what would you say? Bangor is not That's as far right. north as you would go. So, That's right. uh, But we have stories of families who uh, in, a, in, a, in an emergency maternity situation have to drive all the way down to Duluth, which is well over uh, two hours, could be mm-hmm. two and a half hours. And that's and then then it becomes a sort of self fulfilling downward spiral because young families don't want to live where they can't get health care where they can't have a baby for example and and it 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 then that diminishes the support for the local hospital and it it feeds on itself that's the tragedy yes that's exactly right it becomes this exactly as you say a downward spiral so the question is what can we do to help these rural hospitals and the providers that are around the, these rural communities 
not only survive, but thrive. Well, before we start talking about solutions, there is one other problem, and you touched on it in the first thing that you said, and that is a lack of providers, a lack of nurses, a lack of of uh, PAs, a lack yeah. of physicians in, in many cases. And uh, I met this morning with a person in my office who runs a, a nursing program in one of our community colleges, and I said, what are you doing here? Get up there and give us more nurses because it's a huge shortage, huge problem. Well, and I wonder if she said what I have heard providers in Minnesota say, which is that it takes a different kind of expertise to be a provider in a small town or rural area. You might not be surrounded by experts in all areas. You have to be, as my mother used to say, kind of the chief cook and bottle washer of the medical community. And and, and a lot of our providers aren't really trained to have that kind of practice. So we need to think about this sort of, you know, get upstream on this well, issue. Well, well, let's jump from from that to some solutions. One of the things we did in Maine some years ago was expand the scope of practice of nurses to give them an opportunity to, to be more physician extenders uh, than uh, just service in a hospital, for example. Right. That's. I think that's a great a great strategy. Another thing that um, I think would be a really good idea is to help uh, help help providers who want to practice in rural areas get the kind of loan forgiveness and other sorts of strategies that give, give them some financial ability to do that because you might not make as much money in a small town as you would in a big city. Well, but, and it's not unusual for somebody to graduate from medical school with three or four hundred thousand exactly. dollars of debt. Exactly. And they are forced to A, go into a specialty rather than general practice, and B, go to a more urban area. And that's why these loan forgiveness programs for going to underserved areas, it seems to me, are just crucial in terms of recruiting. I think that's exactly right, Angus. The way the incentives are set up right now, it incentivizes these physicians to go into more highly compensated fields when what, you know, even though that might not be what everybody was 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 built to do. There was a really interesting story a couple of weeks ago I heard on the radio talking about the levels of mental health concerns among providers, which causes me to think again about how probably a lot of people who might be happier um, working in a, you know, I, I hate to say less pressure because I think that there's an incredible amount of pressure on these rural physicians and nurses, but um, yeah. Well, FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, are crucial in Maine and in, in many of our communities. Is that a, are they a big deal in in, uh, in Minnesota? Extremely important in rural Minnesota. And, and they were, a, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know how to characterize it, but they were very strongly supported by George W. Bush. Yes. And uh, we've got to maintain that bipartisan support because these are, I mean, I was about to say these are lifelines. They are literally lifelines. They are literally lifelines. And I am always reminded that this shouldn't be a partisan issue. Many of these federally qualified um, health centers are operating in what you, what we might think of if you were looking at it through politics, you'd say, well, that's a red county or a red community. It's not a political issue at all. It's a question of whether these small communities can thrive. Another thing that we could do in uh, with these uh, rural, there's a, a whole network of rural health uh, centers, mm -hmm. and the regulations around those rural health centers haven't been updated for decades. So, for example, it could work much, much better if they were able to get 
reimbursed for the care that they provide through telemedicine, but the regulations right now don't allow that. Oh, and that's a, telemedicine is one of the great hopes for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure you see in Maine that, especially if you need access to a good provider who is maybe an expert in a field, but is a many, many hundreds of miles away, you don't have to travel all that distance. Well, that's got to be, I mean, I, I think telemedicine is is a a huge opportunity, and uh, it's growing. But you're right; the regulations have to keep up with a the technology and b the, the the needs of the of the people. Right. Well, and I can't help but add at this moment how important it is to invest in rural broadband because you can't use telemedicine. Oh, you if knew you're I home. wanted to hear you say that. <laughs> it's ab- no, but the, it's an absolutely essential building block. Yeah. For for telemedicine, but also as you and I know, because we work on the Broadband Caucus, is for anything, uh, for economic development, for young families, uh, broadband is the infrastructure of the 21st century. Absolutely. And getting it to be sure that that rural communities aren't left off of that technology is, I think, is one of the most important things that you and I can do around here. I completely agree. And I learned that firsthand from talking to a physician in rural Minnesota who told me how he needed to uh, drive up to the McDonald's in his community to check um, his oncology reports when he was traveling between uh, clinic and clinic. So he'd drive up and, and, and sit in the parking lot and use their and, and use their Wi-Fi from the parking lot in order to read his charts. I've done that at elementary school. <laughs> I know. Well, so uh, broadband is part of it. Telemedicine is part of it. Uh, nurse practitioners, uh, physicians assistants, federally qualified health centers. But one of them, and we talked about it being nonpartisan, but unfortunately, for reasons that escape me, the ACA is part of the solution providing coverage to people and providing Medicaid coverage to people, which often, as you mentioned, ironically, are red counties, rural counties that intended to vote for the president, and they're the, they utilize this, these resources the most, and they really need them. Yes, that's exactly right. I bet Maine is, again, a lot like Minnesota. When the ACA went into effect, the number of people in Minnesota who didn't have health insurance dropped precipitously. So that's a really, really good thing. And we can see it starting to climb up again. Of course, health insurance is good only if it's good health insurance. And that's the other thing that the ACA protects, which is that you get insurance that actually covers you when you are sick, not not, not just when you're healthy. Yeah, you can get a, a cheap so-called junk policy, but when you need it, it's not it's right. not going to be there. It only it only covers a break of your left arm, not your right arm. Or, right, or right, whatever. right, right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, or maternity care or contraceptive care, which is so important. And Medicaid is important. I mean, and, and Medicare in most of our rural hospitals, and I'm going to be talking to an administrator in a few minutes. I believe Medicare and Medicaid are more than half the patients. Sometimes, sixty, seventy percent. So that's a crucial part of the of the mix is, Abs- is yeah. Medicare. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Angus, I'm thinking about something that you said a moment ago about how rural hospitals are an economic engine for small communities in rural areas. I think it's also true that that's the case when we think about um, nursing homes and assisted living centers and and veterans centers, which also are places where people are able to, you know, you know, stay um, in their communities and also get access to rural care. And of course, there again, Medicare and Medicaid are so vitally important. Well, and that gets back again. We come back to some of these problems, but one of the huge problems in Maine is uh, people workers. We've had nursing homes close because they can't find CNAs. Uh, yeah. And we're, we're the the big. In fact, I was with a 
group of business people in Maine this morning, and uh, you know, lack of workers is the biggest issue facing truckers, construction, nursing homes, hospitals. Uh, this is something that yeah. that we've got to confront, and it's one of the reasons that this policy of, of the current administration. And again, I'm not don't want to be political here, but it's you got to call them as you see them of of limiting the number of people coming into the country so severely. And I'm not for legal immigration, illegal immigration, neither are you, not for open borders, neither are you. But uh, to cut back so drastically on legal immigration is, is harming us economically. It's, it's a huge drag on our economy right now. Absolutely. I'm reminded in, in Minnesota, we have one of the largest populations of Liberian refugees of any place in the country. They moved to Minnesota and other parts of the country during the Civil War in Liberia, and they are here with a, they're here legally right now, but they're Immigration status is on the verge of expiring every year. They almost it almost expires. These are people who who work in nursing homes, which is why I bring this up. Many of them work taking care of our, um, you know, our, our parents and grandparents. And it's a great example of the point that you raise, which is that our immigration system affects rural health also. Well, and the irony is that if you and I've we've seen this in the hospitality industry. If you have fifteen jobs in a in a restaurant. And you can only fill ten of them with Americans, and but you can't get the last five. Then everybody loses their job. Those right. Americans lose their jobs because the restaurant can't open. And we've actually had that had that experience. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the 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 rural health care. There's so much more to talk about, but uh, I think the important thing is that generally, and we've talked about some partisan issues, but generally this is a nonpartisan issue. Uh, everybody recognizes that we don't want to lose those hospitals, but we've got to find a way to to make them economically viable so they can continue to serve their communities. Yes, I think I think that's a, that's exactly right. And we also recognize across party lines that the health issues affecting rural communities and small towns are different in some ways from the health issues affecting big cities, and we need to pay special attention to them. And we need to keep people living in those small towns right. by providing. I mean, it's all it's all interconnected. Well, Tina Smith, thank you so much for for joining me. Uh, Minnesota is a beautiful and wonderful place, and uh, uh, you're, but I, you mentioned all the connections you have to Maine. You're welcome back to Maine uh, anytime. And by the way, the weather in Maine is really beautiful. It's in the 70s pretty much year round. We just this whole winter thing. We we that's just to you know so we not overrun. No. Actually, if you want to come back and ski with us sometime in the winter, that would be great. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Angus. Thank you, Senator Smith. A pleasure to be with you. Stay with us on Inside Maine. We're going to talk to somebody who's on the front lines in Caribou, Maine, of delivering rural health care. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We're talking about an issue that is very important to Maine and generally all across the country, rural health care, providing health care in an efficient way in local areas where people live and need the care, but also in a way that is financially viable. Uh, We just talked to Tina Smith, United States Senator from Minnesota, which has very similar issues uh, in this area as Maine. And now uh, I'm delighted to be talking to Chris Duty, who is the CEO of Cary Medical Center up in uh, Caribou, Maine. And uh, she's also the head of Pines Health Services, which is a physician practice. So, Chris, welcome to Inside Maine. And uh, you heard our conversation, my conversation with uh, Senator Smith. Uh, are, are we uh, chasing the right 
uh, issues here? Yeah, uh, well, thank you for inviting me, uh, Senator King. Uh, but I do have to start off saying I, I did listen to your conversation with Senator Smith, and Sundays year around in Maine, I'm not quite <laughs> sure you got that one right, though. <laughs> I, I was just, uh, you know, I was trying to tease her being from Minnesota, that's all. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> No, it actually was a, a great way to open up our conversation to talk about what it's like to be in a rural hospital in America, in northern Maine, and some of the challenges that we face every day and uh, some of the items that you spoke about, uh, whether it's some of the cost issues with telemedicine, issues with workforce. We live those issues every single day in our hospital. Well, let's start with workforce. I take it it's not easy to find the people that you need. Oh, no, it isn't. It's a challenge. And when it comes to physician re- uh, uh, recruitment, we, re- we are actually competing with the nation when it comes to recruiting people to northern Maine. And we've been fortunate, though, this last year, we've been really focused on returning folks to Aroostook County. Students who have been graduates of Caribou High School or high schools here in Aroostook County go on to school to become physicians and want to return to Aroostook County. I'm very proud to say uh, this year we're bringing three local folks back home, and they're actually practicing right here in their hometown community, which is, I, I, has been a great strategy for us. Oh, that's fantastic. Then you don't have to educate them about the joys of living up there. They've experienced it, and they've been away, and they've seen what the rest of the world is like and how cool Arista County is in comparison. Exactly, yeah. and, they're, and we don't have to sell them about the winters or the 70 degrees year-round. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. You're, you're not going to let me forget that one, I guess. I know. You know when we see each other, I will remind you. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, no, I'll wait till February and call you and say it's yeah, seventy degrees, but uh-huh. uh, yeah, but not there's above, twenty, not above but, zero. But there's ten feet of snow. Uh, That's right. Exactly. Uh, well, yes. what about non-physician? Uh, what about CNAs, nurses, uh, administrative people? Uh, yes, that's that's tough too, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. It's a challenge every year, and we've tried many different strategies. And, and even though we've been very fortunate to retrain folks, whether it's second or third career, it uh, seems like we're continually recruiting. Just when you think you fill up your nursing positions, then you get a surprise that there's a new challenge as it relates to CRNAs or uh, nurse practitioners. And so it's always a challenge, and it seems like it's a moving target. So we have to shift our strategies from one specialty to the next. Now, how about telemedicine? Do you see that as part of filling in the gap, or is that more used in the FQHCs, the, the qualified health centers, rather than a, a hospital like yours? Uh, we've used telemedicine in the past, and it definitely fills a gap, but it's also a huge opportunity for the future. Uh, we have used it primarily with radiology and rheumatology and been very successful with it. We do have some regulations that need to be improved. We need to look at reimbursement. There are some limitations as it relates to Medicare reimbursement, but it's definitely a huge opportunity for rural medicine to fill some gaps. Well, let me stop you right there. On the question of reimbursement regulations and those kinds of things, please let me know as a follow-up to this conversation how we can help on those. I mean, that... Absolutely. I think the problem, and, and I talked about this with, with Tina Smith, is uh, the regulations haven't kept up with the technology and the demand. I mean, this is an area where radiology, as you mentioned, is a is ideal. You can read a, an x-ray 100 miles away as easily as you can 10 feet away or 5 exactly. feet away. So uh, very much want to follow up on that. I'll give you some details. I appreciate that. What about providing comprehensive services? You're still providing obstetric services, right? Yes, we are. We're very fortunate to still have a very viable maternity care service. 
not only deliveries but prenatal care and postnatal care. Uh, in fact, we, we actually do the most deliveries in our county, but it's a challenge. Um, I've seen deliveries drop in my 38, 40 years here, you know, from three, 400 deliveries. We do about 200 de- deliveries um, in the past year, um, but it's a challenge in a lot of our rural rural communities because there just aren't enough deliveries. Um, obviously, our state is aging, and um, we unfortunately are seeing more people die than um, births in our state. And for those people in that specialty, you need to have so many deliveries, including C-sections. I mean, it's not just births, it's also C-sections, to make sure that there is a proficient team, physicians, nurses, uh, to take care of mom and babe. So it's a challenge. And we are talking about it uh, here in our state. As you know, we unfortunately have lost some uh, maternity care in some of our rural hospitals, and it's a challenge for that community um, because it's not only the loss of the service, it's what it means for the, for the economics of that local, that local community. And what it means for the ability to, to attract younger families. Absolutely. Oh, it definitely has an impact on attracting younger families. I met a great friend when I served on the American Hospital Association board who served as a CEO in a rural hospital in New Mexico, and they were just closing their OB service. And the next closest OB service, if you can imagine, was 150 miles away. Wow, that's just really hard. You know, you mentioned our demographics in Maine. Sometimes we think we're the only ones having problems. I learned just in the last couple of weeks, in 48 of our 50 states, we're at a negative demographic. We're not at replacement. There are only two states that are in, uh, in, in the positive, and, and this is a long-term problem for this country because we're not going to have enough people to keep the lights on. Exactly. That's a frightening statistic, but true. Obviously, we're an aging population, and you know all too well, a state of Maine being one of the oldest states in the nation, and of course, our county being one of the oldest counties in the oldest state in the nation um, is, is very concerning. But along with that, of course, we're dealing with a lot of elderly people that have chronic disease which means the need for health care services and a strong health care in, in the community is vital for the, for the community going forward. And, of course, as you mentioned with Senator Smith, uh, hospitals are an economic engine. I mean, we are the heart of Caribou. We are the largest employer. We are important to this community. We are important to this county. So it's a, there's a lot of forces that are coming at us all at the same time. What percentage of your patients are either Medicare or Medicaid? So combined government payers, uh, we run about 62% government payers uh, for our rural hospital. So those programs are absolutely essential. I mean, to say that they're important is is an understatement. Oh, absolutely. Um, And as you know, um, with the recent change in uh, governor, we... The state of Maine, of course, voted in Medicaid expansion, and now we are just beginning the process of actually enrolling additional folks in the Medicaid program. So Medicaid expansion has been very important and very critical to a lot of rural hospitals in our state. And particularly because a lot of these folks may have been treated before anyway, but they wouldn't have been covered by any insurance, and the hospital would have to eat it as charity care. Exactly. Or they elected to not receive care, and then by the time they come to us, they're quite ill. And it's it's more expensive to treat at, at that point. Oh, absolutely. Oh, now, you know, if, we, if we can get them while they're healthy and keep them on the path of wellness, it's better for everyone. Well, I'm a big advocate of, of prevention. I think that's the low-hanging fruit of health care costs. The cheapest medical intervention of all is the one that you don't have to do. Absolutely. No offense to your hospital, but... Uh, <laughs> we no, want to keep, I understand. 
Yeah, we, we want to keep people healthy. Well, Chris, if you could wave a wand, what would be the three things you would change or do or make happen in the healthcare system in Maine? One of the real priorities that I would focus on or, or suggest is to improve reimbursement as it relates to government payers. Uh, there's been a lot of talk over the years. I know you understand it real well about this issue of cost shifting and what it means for businesses in our state and across the nation. We have got to see improved reimbursement with government payers. Here's the fine point. If a service costs the hospital $100, Medicare may pay $60, and then you have to make it up with the private pay, private insurance that have to pay $140, and and, uh, basically private insurance is subsidizing Medicare and Medicaid. Exactly. You know, that's a real challenge for businesses because we want to keep businesses in our community. Uh, We have a number of small mom-and-pop shops, small restaurants, and uh, the cost of insuring themselves or their their employees is becoming quite a burden. And we have to stop that cost shifting, and we have to look at improving reimbursement through these government payers. Okay, so that's number one is better reimbursement. What's number two? Number two would be to um, fill all the vacant positions that I have as it relates to whether physicians, nurses, technicians, so we can meet the needs of our community. We're carrying some pretty hefty costs as it relates to locum physician or traveling physicians and nurses, and that's very costly, I mean, to not only my hospital, but to uh, hospitals across this nation. And to find enough of the the high-quality physicians, nurses, technologists that we're looking for to fill these positions would be critically important to all of Maine's hospitals and hospitals in rural areas. And it would be actually be a cost savings. But we have to make sure that we have the the people in the positions to make that happen. And so one of the things now, physicians, we have UNE Medical School. That's really the only medical school in Maine. And we have the Maine track at at University of Southern Maine. But nurses and CNAs and, and and those technician positions, we have that in our control. I mean, we can expand those programs at the university, at Husson, at, at the community colleges. That That's something, it seems to me, that we really need to ramp up. Absolutely. And the, the university system and the main community college system have been excellent in working with health care providers throughout our state and looking at the need. And it seems just when we, we develop strategy and we think we're there, um, we either have more retirements than we have enough nurses to fill those positions. So we're, we're getting there. I think we've done a better job, but I think there's still some opportunity, and we just need to make sure that we're well prepared for 5, 10, and 15 years out. That's the key. One final wish, and then I want to talk about veterans. What sure. would be the third thing you might want to change? Stop the rising cost of pharmaceuticals. Um, I know there's been a amen, lot of... Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> well, um, and I'm talking from a probably a different point of view. So a lot of times we talk, we hear in the, in the public about rising pharmaceutical costs. It's, it's, you know, the patient who can't fill their prescription or doesn't have enough money to, to have their script filled. That is an issue, and that's a major, major problem. But it's also on the hospital side. All of a sudden, we go to purchase a drug that a year ago cost $180, but now this year it costs $1,400. That's a major problem because obviously we need that drug to take care of our patients. We don't get an improved DRG reimbursement from Medicare, so all we see is an additional expense, which means that we have to take expense from elsewhere, whether it's workforce or supplies or some other other areas, to make sure that we have these needed drugs to take care of our patients. I think it's a huge issue and it's one that a lot we've done a lot of work down here. I'm yeah. 
I'm supporting safe imports from Canada, for example. I mean, I feel like we pay the highest cost for the same drug of anybody in the world. A pharmaceutical guy stopped me one day and said, why are you so tough on us? And I said, because I feel like I'm the only guy on the plane paying full fare. Good for uh, you. I love it. Well, to give you an example, Angus, so um, I was a practicing nurse for many, many years, over three decades ago, and a drug that we used all the time. Very. They let you be a nurse at the age of 12? I'm amazed. <laughs> Oh, I, I love you even more, Senator. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this drug years ago, well, it, it was called Isopril. And I don't know the exact cost, but I'm sure it was well under $100. To purchase that drug today is $1,400. It's a drug that's decades old, great drug to treat abnormal heart rhythm. And now the cost of it has seven, 800% increase. It just doesn't make any sense. And again, all that is an increased cost. Yeah, something's gone wrong in, in the system. I mean, we, we give drug companies a, pa a patent, which is fine. That's how our system is supposed to work, which is essentially a monopoly. But there's always been a kind of unspoken understanding that, okay, you have a monopoly, but you're not going to gouge. You're not going to take advantage of it. That seems to have fallen away recently. And you see these drugs. Insulin is, is the example I always hear from people in Maine about it used to cost $40 a vial, and now it's 400 or 500 and, and it's essentially the same drug. This is something I think all of us, and particularly those of us down here in Washington, really have to get on because it's a climbing part of, of the medical bill picture, and particularly for seniors. Uh, exactly. Well, let me, yeah. let me before we go, I want to ask, because I know you've done some really good work with veterans. Describe how that's worked out up there. We've been blessed for the last 30 years to have a very strong working relationship for veterans in our county. We started with the first, what's called CBOC, Community-Based Outpatient Clinic, that's housed right here at the hospital through the Veterans Administration. We're also fortunate to have a 40-bed long-term care facility through the main veterans home with a 30-bed residential care facility for veterans with Alzheimer's. We were also one of the pilot projects for inpatient care through Project ARCH, Access Received Closer to Home. So we've done a lot of work with the VA uh, based here in Maine, Togus, as well as the VA in Washington. And our goal has been to expand healthcare services for veterans so they're close to home. They don't have to travel, especially during long winters. As you know, you know right. these roads very well. And, and there's great opportunity, not only here in Caribou, but across this nation in rural, rural America for veterans to receive care close to home. In fact, tonight we're hosting a town hall meeting with the new VA director, and we always have a great turnout. We can have anywhere from 75 to 100 veterans that turn out and talk about what their needs are. And the veterans I talk to, they don't want to lose TOGAS. No, but, oh, but no. they do want the ability to have non-sort of togus issues dealt with at home. We have to be careful because there are people that want to sort of privatize the VA and do away with with the VA health system, which I think would be a huge mistake. Absolutely. Uh, so it's a we have to find the the right balance between what you're providing in the community, which I think is a great example, but not undermining the importance of togus to our veterans. Absolutely. In fact, the veterans have great respect for TOGIS. And again, we are not here providing care to replace TOGIS. We're here to augment the care. A lot of veterans still go to TOGIS to receive a number of their health care services. They go on to Bedford, go on to Boston area, or even into Bangor. But there's a lot of care that they can see, receive right here close to home without negatively impacting TOGIS. Well, Chris, there's a lot more we can talk about. Huge subject. Just keep the ideas coming as you see issues. Let us know, as you know, 
Susan Collins and I. Susan is from Caribou. She, <laughs> she was probably born at Cary. I wouldn't be surprised. She was uh, born at this hospital. Well, there you go. I that was a that was a not so wild guess. Yeah. Um, but, as well as uh, I was born oh, here also. Oh, is that right? I didn't realize that. Did yeah. uh, Dean Patterson's father delivered a lot of the babies up? Oh. Uh, Donahue, Doctor Donahue. Doctor Donahue, yes. Yeah, his daughter's a good friend of mine in Freeport. That's Maine, you know. That's the way Maine works. Listen, Chris, thank you so much, and keep in touch with us as issues arise, anything we can help with. But thanks for sharing your thoughts today, and I look forward to continue to work with you on these issues. And to those of you listening, thanks for staying with us on Inside Maine, and we'll talk to you next time. Have a great month.